every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I am the county clerk in Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we are really excited to have Eddie Perez here to talk about voting equipment, vendors, voting machines, everything that you would ever want to know about how that process works. So we're going to pull back the curtain today. So we welcome Eddie Perez to the show. Good morning. It's fabulous to be with you both and uh, looking forward to the conversation. First, we always ask, how did you end up in the elections field? Everybody has a version of, you know, I, I kind of fell into it. I wasn't, nobody like sort of wakes up and chooses to go into elections. And I had a similar sort of story. Um, my background is in political science and government. And, and that's what I studied in, in college and graduate school. And before I got into elections, I was actually working at the Texas State Legislature. And I was doing bill analysis. And all the way back at the end of 2002, they had a, a really big political change that basically overnight, it abolished this whole civil service office that did legislation. And almost overnight, there were about three dozen of us that were suddenly looking for work. And, and it's not an exaggeration. And I remember it vividly. I was living in Austin. At that time, I was looking at a print newspaper. And I literally saw a classified ad in the Austin American Statesman. And it said something about how somebody who did electronic voting, some company, they, they needed someone that had a background in adult instruction. And it would be great if you did desktop publishing and being bilingual was, was also a benefit. And I was like, well, okay, that, that sounds good. And I gave him a call and I ended up working for about 16 years for one of the three major voting system providers in the country. And that's how I got into it. And once I was there, when I started, I was really doing training for all of the county staff and for lay people, you know, poll worker personnel. But that was really just my start. And almost everything under the sun, obviously short of actually being an election official, I had the opportunity to work really closely with lots of election officials and supporting elections and everything that goes with it. So that was my best education for so many of the details. Having so much experience with vendors themselves, the process of getting equipment off the ground, I mean, there's a, a whole process. Some states have their own certification process, but a lot of them rely just on what the federal certification is. So can you do kind of an explanation of what that involves? The decentralized system of election administration that we have in the U.S. leads leads to tons of diversity. And, and one of the things that's been interesting and challenging in dealing with voting technology is just that there are so many different rules and state-specific requirements and so forth. But you're right, the place where it starts is really with this kind of umbrella of the federal certification process. Everybody knows it's the voluntary voting system guidelines. And as I often point out, I think the most important word there is voluntary. And that actually kind of cuts both ways, because on the one hand, it's state law that is governing elections and so forth. But there's about 40 states out there that as a prerequisite 
for their own state approval process for voting technology, their first step is to require either full EAC certification, the Election Assistance Commission, or a test report from an accredited test lab. So the vast majority of the country is relying in some way on uh, voting technology that has gone through the federal process. And that's why even though it's a voluntary system, it, it really is incredibly impactful in terms of shaping not only the way voting technology looks itself, but really the dynamics of the marketplace. And, and election officials know that a lot of those dynamics, they're frustrating. I think it's really hard for election officials. There are not a lot of uh, vendors in the industry. It's highly concentrated. It's pretty rare to see new vendors come along. Um, and obviously, it's also the pace of change in this industry is very, very slow. One thing that I find really interesting that you probably have a much better perspective on than me that you mentioned is the concentration of, of vendors in this industry, that it's kind of a hard industry to break into. And I think another thing about it, in fairness to the people, to the companies that make voting equipment, it is a risky industry to be in. And I read an article a while back about IBM that back in the in the 60s, you know, they started producing these punch card systems. And by the 70s and 80s, they found out that, you know, whenever an election goes wrong, it tarnishes the, the name of their company. And so they got out of it and they sold off their punch card voting business. I think something similar happened to Diebold, which had a good reputation making ATM machines, and then they got wrapped up and stuff. And now, obviously, last year in 2020, now moving to 2021, Dominion. So I, I was hoping maybe you could speak to that from your experience that because politicians talk about, oh, we want competition and you know transparency and everything, but it's also a pretty risky business to be in, isn't it? It, it is a very tough business. And, and everything you said, Eric, is, is true. Um, the, one of the places to start is the size of the voting technology industry in the United States itself is, is very, very small. In any given year, there's roughly on the order of about $300 million in revenue to be made. To, to give a picture of, of how that compares to like other kinds of technology and, and the size of, of other government technology marketplaces, those things are in the billions. I mean, you, you literally have like government IT markets that are maybe 50 billion, $80 billion a year. It's a lot. It's a whole lot of money. So a $300 million industry is very, very small. There is this very complex and costly process uh, of federal certification. And, um, and, and you're right. It's, it, it's obviously a very high stakes public function. And when things go wrong, um, you know, having problems in, in, in an election, that can be about as challenging for a business as one can imagine, because elections obviously are something that everybody in the country can relate to. And they're obviously determining, you know, who's, who has their, their hands on the levers of power. So it, it is a very tough business. And I think that that's a big part of the reason, certainly over the last several decades, there, there have been companies, as you mentioned, that just totally exited the business and, and the major players have, have really, you know, sort of found their places and they are the dominant players in the industry. That's all true. And that definitely has, you know, outcomes for election officials and for the country. One of the things that was really interesting to me in, in all my years of working in elections is it's very apparent to me that election officials have a deep understanding of how consequential Federal, the federal certification process is, and 
obviously, election officials know how much they depend on some form of voting technology. But there's no doubt that for many, many election officials out there, even the ones that are most plugged in and the most savvy, I think it's fair to say generally, there's a lot of question marks like, yeah, I know the federal cert process is huge and important, but I don't really know anything about it. I just know that it's huge and important. And at some point in the years ahead, some kind of technology is going to come out of all that big sausage making. And so here's the reason it looks that way. To start things off, I fully stole from a really excellent PowerPoint presentation that I saw. It was given to the National Institute of Standards and Technology a few years ago. And it pointed out what people need to know is, number one, the EAC federal certification process is what's called compliance testing or conformance testing. It's just what it sounds like. Does this technology that we're testing and reviewing, does it comply with the federal VVSG standards, the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines? And that's just a yes or no question. I mean, you can imagine that big 300-page book, like a very long checklist that says, this is what a voting system must do. These are the things that it's prohibited from doing and so forth. And in addition to that, they're also checking, does the voting system do what the manufacturer says it does? Yes or no? So that's it. Does it meet the standards? Does it do what the manufacturer says? It is not quality assurance. It is not, you know, some endorsement of the performance of a voting system. And finally, as you all know, federal compliance is not testing for all of those state-specific functions. Another thing that's important about the process is the EAC doesn't do any of the actual testing. The Election Assistance Commission is relying on those accredited voting system test labs. And basically, the overall federal cert process is a complicated back and forth between the vendor and the test labs and the EAC based on a exchange of documentation and test procedures and results reports. And basically, the EAC functions like a bureaucratic, almost like a ringleader. They're, they're the referee of that whole process, and they're ensuring that everything that happens is documented and, and following the rules that are in the, it's called the Testing and Certification Program Manual. It's like the rules of the game. The rules of the game for the overall process, you can almost think of it like it's for federal certification, that's the Constitution. But in terms of shaping the overall big picture dynamics of why the pace of change is so slow or why there are relatively few vendors or why, for example, manufacturers keep changing their current systems rather than building new ones, a lot of that really has to do with the policies in the program manual. And they are arguably even more important than just complying with the requirements themselves. So in terms of the nitty gritty, Every manufacturer has to be registered with the EAC. They apply for each individual certification campaign, and every manufacturer gets to select which voting system test laboratory they're going to work with and use. And they're actually paying the bills for the voting system test laboratories. There are currently only two accredited test laboratories in the United States. And so when manufacturers, they know they're going to have a campaign, They've picked their test lab and they apply to start a new certification campaign. The really, really critical question is, is the voting system that they're bringing a new system that has never been certified before? Or alternatively, is it a previously certified system that, again, they're just changing it? That's the critical question that determines 
whether you can keep testing your equipment to an older standard, like the 2005 standard, which is what most technology is doing today, or in contrast, if you have a new system, there are certain conditions where you don't have any choice but to test your, new st your voting system against the newest standard. Ultimately, those policies are a big part of the reason that we continue to see most of the fielded systems that date all the way back to the 2005 standard. The testing itself, you can divide it into kind of three sections. There's a pre-testing phase, and then there's the actual testing, and then there's a post-testing phase. During the pre-testing phase, the EAC and the test laboratory and the vendor, they have a kickoff meeting to just kind of understand the overall voting system configuration. They ask questions about what's new, what's different, what did you change? A really important part of this, which is a good lesson that the EAC learned over the past 20 years or so, is during the pre-testing phase, they're really trying to make sure that everybody's actually ready, that the voting system itself is fully baked and that it is ready for test, that, that the manufacturer is not trying to rush something along before they're really ready, because that, of course, just leads to inefficiency for everybody. And so as part of that process, they have what's called a test readiness review. And there's almost like a little introductory training that happens between the vendor and the test lab to make sure that, that they literally understand how they're going to use the system. And the last two things that are really important in that testing phase, and just generally in federal certification, there is an enormous amount of documentation that is required by the EAC, instruction manuals. It has to do with detailed procedures for how you configure equipment. It has to do with your security features. That is referred to as the technical data package. And before they start, the test labs will look at some small portion of the actual software source code in the voting system. And the source code review is basically just to make sure that the software is well-constructed and, and it's following, you know, just sort of acceptable conventions and so forth. And I know for election officials, your voting system can feel frozen in place. Making any kind of a change, you know, sets off a whole chain of different tasks, operations. It takes time. It's like turning a battleship. The reason that that is the case is because every single time that a voting system is going through a test campaign, the test lab and the EAC are testing that exact system. Every single component has a particular version of software on it. Your EMS ballot definition software is version 11.2, it's not 11.1. You've got a different set of software on your optical scanning machine, on your ballot marking devices, your tabulation computer, you get the picture. And when any one of those things changes, you effectively have a different system. So the way that this is effectively getting locked in place is before testing begins, they do an exhaustive verification of every single system function that's in the documentation. And the second piece is what they call a physical configuration audit. And that is where they're, again, checking every single component, every subcomponent, every subsystem, and ensuring that it matches the exact versions and configuration that the vendor is submitting. And once they've done all of that, it's really up to the voting system test laboratory to start running through that checklist in the VVSG requirements. And the voting system test labs, for some portions of the testing, they also rely on additional third-party labs. 
So for example, they go through temperature testing or humidity testing. They literally take scanning machines and they put it in a humidity chamber to make sure that, you know, when your paper gets a little bit damp uh, because of humidity in the air, can it continue to reliably scan those ballots without getting paper jams and so forth. And so they do all the testing, they run through everything they need to. All of that is done according to a test plan that the test lab needs to submit before they begin. The EAC has to approve it. And at the end of the entire process, in the post-testing phase, the test laboratory writes the all-important test report. And that is the final summary of what happened in those tests. Did they indeed find compliance with all of the applicable requirements? And at the end of the test report, the test laboratories will have a sentence or two where they make a recommendation of whether the voting system configuration should be granted certification. And ultimately, the EAC is the decision authority on all of that. There's uh, an official document called a, a scope of certification. That's the system. The all important question, how long does certification take? A new system is always gonna take longer. And it also depends on the scope of the changes. Uh, a certification campaign could happen in as little as one to three months. That's relatively fast. I think that's less typical for entire systems or systems that have been certified before, probably somewhere between six and 12 months to get through a full federal certification is not uncommon. And overall, you know, even in the worst case scenario, um, a, a federal certification campaign should not last longer than about 18 months. And again, to emphasize, this is all even before we've gotten to the respective state approval processes. Vendors are going to analyze, well, they know in advance, they know the markets that they're most interested in, in selling the product. They're going to go to those states. And again, um, you know, states have very, very diverse practices in terms of certification. Um, I have seen some states that certify things in as little as a, a month or so. And in some places, the state approval process may not be all that much more complicated th th than a demonstration. I mean, in some places, it, it looks a little bit like a sales demonstration and a Q&A. That's less typical. And there are some states that are very, very, very rigorous and that are arguably even harder than federal certification. But you can very easily start stacking up two to three years to just kind of get to the square one of where you want to be. And, and that's if things are, are working smoothly. One thing I'm really curious about, because of your experience with the testing and certification process, but also with the procurement process for voting systems, I've always found it interesting the difference between a statewide procurement of a voting system and like a county by county procurement of a voting system. In Missouri, it's, it's county by county. And I probably personally prefer that because, you know, if the state was foisting a system upon me, it probably wouldn't be the one I want. However, it could also be the case that procuring something statewide, the state might drive a better bargain with the vendor, um, perhaps, and there would be more uniformity across the state, maybe more uh, knowledge sharing across jurisdictions that have the same equipment kind of thing. Curious what your perspective is on that from your experience. 
the question of, of whether to do things statewide or not in its foundations. A lot of that just has to do, I think, with you know, different political cultures in, in different places and, and what different states are used to. But even there, even when you do have statewide procurements, you can start kind of splitting hairs and they also have very different styles. I mean, to give just two pretty recent examples, both Michigan and Georgia went through statewide procurement processes, but they ended up with a different implementation model. In Georgia, they really bought one system from one vendor that all 159 counties got, and it was a very, very top-down sort of approach. In contrast to that, Michigan did what is closer to what you mentioned about sort of you know driving a, a harder bargain. Michigan does not have one uniform uh, voting system for the whole state. The statewide RFP process was effectively creating a procurement vehicle, as it were, for the counties. And so on the one hand, the state was able to manage some of the uniformity of what they wanted voting systems to be able to do so that they would be in line with all of the laws and the administrative rules. And I think that that was very good in terms of creating things that can feel a little more seamless. And it allows the state to perhaps manage things uh, more broadly and more efficiently in the future. But they ended up allowing three different vendors to propose their systems to the RFP. And then with each individual vendor, the state frankly negotiated on behalf of all of those jurisdictions. And at a certain point when the state had confidence that, all right, we know that all of the voting systems can do what we think is important. We have that layer of uniformity in terms of supporting procedures. And last but not least, we're convinced that we have driven these prices as low as we can possibly get them. Now we're going to give all of the individual jurisdictions the opportunity to go and purchase one of those three systems. In my mind, we're kind of in the second generation of very similar equipment. And I think you kind of spoke to that. We're still working on very similar stuff. There hasn't been this huge, you know, innovation jump. And I think that that goes back to what you were talking about earlier, where it's a very, it's a high risk field. Nobody really wants to do too much. You know, it's mostly more tinkering than it is overall. Do you think given the behavior of the market and the behavior of, you know, when we're procuring them in the first place, it's not like we're buying these things every couple of years. And so there's, you know, this is a long-term thing. Do you think the VVSG is going to spur a new way to do voting equipment? Or do you think that we are essentially stuck with this equipment or some version of this equipment for the next 10, 15 years? With VVSG 2.0 just having been adopted, that is going to have impacts on the marketplace in the sense that years from now, and it will be years, there's going to be another turn of the screw where, yes, there's going to be a new generation of voting equipment that is going to come out. In terms of like actual timelines, people recently asked, how, how soon do you think we will we see 2.0 compliant equipment? To me, the very, very earliest best case scenario, and I think it'll be exceptions, is I wouldn't expect to see 2.0 compliant um, voting system equipment exit the federal certification process before 2023. Okay, I think any vendor that wants to go chase that 
from now to then is the soonest they could do it. I think that that market in 2023, one year before a presidential election, is going to be relatively small because a lot of people, they don't want to hop on that 2.0 bandwagon. They don't want to get that new generation. They don't want to do it right in 2024, of course, because that's the election year. So I think the sweet spot for when a new generation of equipment is really going to start to be felt in the marketplace is 2025 at the earliest. And I think that in exactly the same way that we just saw a lot of buyers. So between 2016 and 2020, a lot of jurisdictions refreshed their equipment in 2017, 2018, and a few did it in 2019. We are likely to see the same version of that in 2026 or 2027. Okay, that's still a ways away. And they're going to do that in advance of that 2028 presidential election. Now, the reason I'm saying all this to return to your original question is, are we stuck with what we have? It's a yes and a no. The, the part where there will be new equipment, yes, that's going to happen. But the picture that I am painting of the overall dynamics, namely, how different are those systems across the vendors? Does everybody kind of have a version of an optical scanning machine? Does everybody have a version of some sort of an accessible device and so forth? The answer to all of that is yes. Do I expect that the number of vendors is going to change much? No. And do I see anything in the new program manuals or in the requirements that I expect are going to materially change the slow pace of change and so forth? No, I don't. So in that sense, there's no doubt that VBSG 2.0 is going to be impactful, but I don't think anybody should get, you know, too optimistic about it having dramatic changes in the dynamics really quickly. I just don't think that's going to happen. Some of the things that I expect to happen with the new generation of voting equipment, they are not unlike what has happened in the past, but it is going to lead in some new directions. So if, for example, you just ask, well, what is the impact of the federal standards on how the technology actually gets developed? So one, there's no doubt that the requirements and the standards, they do shape the voting system designs themselves. 40 states are requiring some form of EAC certification. That means that meeting the requirements in the new standards is kind of like table stakes for all the manufacturers. And to that extent, all of those functional capabilities that are in the standards, they have a kind of leveling effect. You know, they effectively become a blueprint that every manufacturer in some way, shape, or form, there's obviously variations, but again, everybody's going to have an EMS. In 2.0, the vast majority of people are going to have paper-based systems. Everybody is going to have to meet accessibility in some way. Everybody is going to have their tabulation computer. The other reason that the federal standards matter is they shape the, what I would call the broad thrust of the voting system architectures themselves. 2.0 effectively disallows paperless DREs, for example. The only kind of electronic systems that could meet 2.0 requirements are what are known as end-to-end -end verifiable systems that many of them use complex cryptography to allow verifiability. But the vast majority of jurisdictions and what manufacturers you know, are going to develop and sell are going to be paper-based architectures. You know, right now, 
somewhere upward of 90% of jurisdictions used a voting system in the last election that, that had some form of paper, there's no doubt that the 2.0 generation is going to push that much higher. So that's another way that the standards can, as I said, they shape the broad thrust of the architectures. In the latest version of the requirements, another thing that's really a big theme that is going to drive the way that manufacturers make their equipment are the requirements for auditability and for software independence. It remains to be seen how they're going to be implemented, but not surprisingly, almost every time there are new standards, they're also trying uh, to advance accessible voting. And, and to make that, that, that's obviously a really hard problem. There's a lot of frustration out there among voters with disabilities and advocates for voters with disabilities. That type of technology has some of the most difficult trade-offs. They're really hard design problems to solve. And frankly, I don't think that a lot of vendors have done an especially you know, good job there. But that's another thread that runs through the standards that I think is also going to be pushing the, the designs. A lot of the things that I don't think are going to change are unfortunately negative consequences of how the federal standards shape the marketplace. Everything that I talked about, is it a new voting system? Is it a modification? Are you doing an old standard? Are you doing a new standard? What the EAC program is doing is it shapes how frequently change happens. In this industry, the answer is it doesn't change very often. So certification is going to remain complex. It's going to stay costly. It's going to continue to take time. And manufacturers don't like to do it more than is necessary. And that is why vendors might wait months or even years to make changes that election officials want. You know, there might be one tiny little thing that you need to make your reporting a little bit easier or something that maybe your voting system approximates one of your state procedures, but you have a simple thing that could make it a lot more efficient. And it's very natural and reasonable for election officials to feel like that's like one tiny thing. How hard can it be? Well, the reality is that those vendors are sitting there and building these long wish lists. And they're saying to themselves, I may only be going into certification every one or two years, and I'm going to have a punch list of the most important features that my most customers want. And, and that's what I'm going to, to do in, in my next campaign. Um, one can argue that the certification program does create perverse incentives for manufacturers to keep modifying their old equipment built on those old standards instead of moving forward more aggressively with the innovation. Everything that I mentioned about the complexity and the cost of certification, that means that for the manufacturers, they have a lot of sunk costs in their existing architectures. They, they invested a lot in those baselines, if you will. And they want to try to get a return on investment on those costs by continuing to sell what they already have for as long as they can, rather than having to scrap their current designs and, and do the heavy lift of starting something over. On, again, on the one hand, from a business standpoint, I can understand that, but it's still undeniable that I don't think that's good for the country. I don't think it's good for election officials. I don't think it's good for the overall security posture of our election infrastructure. And the last thing that I want to talk about is the EAC does have a really important role to play here as an institution, as an agency. The question of how quickly they develop and adopt new standards or not 
really creates a lot of business uncertainty for the manufacturers. I'll give you a quick illustration. All the way from 2009 to 2015, and during this period of time, the EAC lost a quorum of its commissioners. There was a lot of uncertainty about whether the standard before 2.0, which was just a minor set of changes, this is the 1.1 standard, a lot of uncertainty in the manufacturer's community about whether it was ever going to get finished. And so between 2009 and all the way up to 2015, a lot of manufacturers basically said, I'm skipping that whole standard. I'm not going to design anything to the 1.1 standard. I have my 2005 standard system and I can keep selling that. And we're going to see what happens with this new 2.0 process. But then the 2.0 process also took a long time. You know, it was launched in 2016. And originally the EAC's goal was to wrap up the new 2.0 standards in early 2018. It just happened. And this illustrates that for, for reasons that election officials can't control, for reasons that manufacturers can't control, and for political reasons, again, if they don't have a quorum, if they can't adopt new standards, everybody else is sitting there and waiting, waiting for them to do something. And it is not an exaggeration to say that a lot of manufacturers ended up taking a, hey, let's wait and see for the last 11 years. So the bottom line, again, is that when the EAC moves slowly in terms of the standards update process, it basically slows down the whole industry. Uh, everybody ends up risk averse. Everybody ends up resistant to change unless it's absolutely necessary. And again, that is why every EAC certified voting system that exists out in the world today is designed to a standard that is 16 years old. And that is an eternity in the world of technology. And the kinds of technological threats that existed in 2005 versus the kinds of threats that exist today, and we have evidence of foreign nation states trying to interfere in our elections, uh, that's why this stuff matters. That's, that's where the rubber you know, really meets the road. There are some things that, that I don't mean to sound like a downer here. There, there are some really important things that happened in 2.0 that will make a meaningful difference. First is the emphasis on auditability and the emphasis on paper-based uh, architectures. I think that that's going to push the country farther in the direction of evidence-based elections, which is what we need. It's not magically going to solve our problems with public confidence in elections, but there's no doubt that, you know, kind of an institutional recognition and, and facing the reality that, yes, technology is vulnerable and voting systems are no exception. I think it is just important that we have updated security standards. As I mentioned, the pace at which technology changes is very, very fast. And there are also some you know, tentative advancements in accessibility. The 2.0 requirements, I think what is a shift in accessibility from the previous, that they're emphasizing that you have to provide equality of access throughout the whole voting process, not just marking your ballot, but also verifying it, the way that you cast it. It's basically saying that every step of the process has to support all voters. And I think that's going to have some significant implications for what future hardware designs might look like. Change is happening. It, it matters that there is a new set of federal standards for voting systems and election officials can expect to see those, those changes. They're going to lead to a generation of different 
voting equipment. Having said that, I think everybody needs to kind of moderate their expectations. The requirements alone are not going to change the overall framework in which all of this is happening. There are no big changes that I can see in the program manual to facilitate more agile changes to voting systems, for example. Minor changes that can be done without certification, for example, that doesn't include security patches. It, it hasn't in the past. It probably won't in the future. Again, there's no changes to the overall basic framework, which relies on these sort of squishy definitions of new versus modified systems. And the fact that you have hundreds and hundreds of requirements. So there's no reason to think that the time and costs of certification are going to materially change. This is essentially a 20-year-old framework that came out of HAVA. And the way things were set up is from another era in response to a different set of questions in a threat environment that was also really different. And I think that until state and local officials, uh, Congress, the EAC itself, until they look at the fundamentals and say, I really want some different outcomes here. I do want more manufacturers. I do want a faster process. I need more flexibility and agility, or I need to be able to update you know, security features more rapidly. If those are the outcomes that people want, and they're the obvious ones, expecting to get those in a framework that people are not apparently willing to tinker with very much, it's not likely that those outcomes are, are, are going to happen. Uh, something else is going to have to give. And I think that that's, that's the main takeaway for the next 10 years. I think that's a great point. And a good reminder to everybody that we don't just have to be passive participants in the process. That procurement process, whether it's at the state or local level, is in so many ways potentially the most powerful and effective vehicle that election officials have to try to get what they want from the vendor. If election officials are talking to each other and sharing information about their procurement processes, you know, there is strength in numbers and there's strength in shared information. So I think that's one of the most important things for election officials to, to be thinking about. And the other one is, you know, press on your vendors. They want to have that business. Make them earn it. You know, if there are things that are really necessary, I'll tell you, I mean, to my own experience in, in, in the industry, there are marketplaces where the buying authorities just made it sort of clear, if your system doesn't have a certain capability, X, Y, Z, it's not going to be competitive and we're not going to be interested. And there's nothing like that kind of message, either implicit or explicit, to make a vendor get off their butt and go back to the development table and make some changes in their system. So that's exactly right. Don't be a passive participant. Take ownership of what you need and tell the vendors what, what you want and push them to get there. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Please join us on the next episode of High Turnout Wide Margins for exciting coverage of election administration topics. Hope you tune in.